Welcome back to your home inspector training. I am Garth Haslam, the home medic. And the subject this time around, we're going to talk about water heaters. Now, just recorded the segment on plumbing. And as I mentioned there, you know, yes, the water heater is part of the plumbing system. But there's so many things to inspect and so many things that can go wrong that I really think we need to have a separate recording just for the water heater. So here goes. Now, the inspection points on the water heater, there's a few of them, and of course they come pretty standard on most water heaters. And we're going to be talking this time about mostly just the natural gas and propane type heaters. For the boiler type systems and some of those other much less common systems, uh, you're going to need to do some of your own research. For me, there are so few in my area that I don't want to pretend that I... Uh, know what I'm talking about yet. Now, at some point in the future, I might have to do a bunch of research just so that, that resource is available. But for right now, I'm going to talk about what I know, and that is the natural gas type water heaters. So, uh, the inspection points. The first thing that I always look for is the earthquake strap. And, you know, I live in an earthquake area. If you live in maybe Florida where earthquakes are much less likely, the rules may be different on the earthquake strap. But the concept, you might have seen the TV news shows where California has an earthquake and entire neighborhoods burned down. So what is happening there is that you get the shake and shimmer and water heaters start falling over and then you're mixing natural gas that is blowing off and a flame. Next thing that happens is you've got this big burst of natural gas exploding. That house burns down and then it lights the trees and the houses in the neighborhood on fire and then the whole neighborhood goes. And all of this could have been stopped by having an earthquake security strap on every water heater or at least on the one that fell down. So that is important, especially, of course, in areas where you have earthquakes that happen on any sort of a regular basis. Now, I am no expert on how many earthquakes happen in New Jersey. I don't know that the answer to that question is zero, because, of course, a person can never say that there will never be an earthquake in New Jersey, but who knows? In any case... If you're inspecting in New Jersey, you might want to check for yourself the requirements for an earthquake security strap. Now, besides just seeing the strap, you're going to want to go a little further. And, of course, that strap needs to be tied securely to the studs. Sometimes I'll see where they're tying the strap maybe to simple sheet metal, maybe the furnace flue as it's often right next to the water heater. Of course, that is very thin sheet metal, and it's not going to hold a water heater up if it needs to. Just attaching it to anything isn't going to be enough. Similarly, if they attach to sheetrock with nothing behind it, that's not going to hold a water heater up either. They've got to actually tie into something secure, i.e. a stud. I have seen where individuals will tie a water heater into the joists above, and this especially applies when you've got the water heater out in the middle of the room in the basement, for example. If there's nothing to tie to, then either you tie to the ceiling or you actually put a framed wall in there and secure that framed wall so that you can secure the water heater to the framed wall. So those are the sorts of things you're going to want to look for on an earthquake strap. 
Also on a water heater, there is a requirement for, uh, and it's known in different areas as different items, it's called a PRV for a pressure reducing valve or a TPR for a temperature pressure release valve. It's usually located at or towards the top of the unit. And the idea with this is that as the water heater is uh, heating up, it is causing pressure inside there. And you may or may not have watched the TV show Mythbusters, where they basically overpressurize a water heater just to see if it really blows like the legend describes. And the answer is yes, it does. Sometimes a water heater becomes a bomb. Sometimes it becomes a rocket. In either case, you've got a huge safety issue. And I actually did an inspection. It's one of the first ones I did back in the mid-90s where I had the buyer that was a little bit emotional. He was fighting back tears from time to time as he was buying this house, and he was asking me very odd questions like, do you think this is an original stud? And finally I got from him why he was asking those kinds of questions, and it turns out that he was buying the home that he grew up in. What had happened is the water heater in that house had actually overpressurized, It blew up. It went through the main floor where his dad would have been sleeping. It went through the ceiling in the main floor. It went through the attic and the roof and pretty much destroyed about a third of the house. It would have killed his dad, but his dad at the time was uh, having sleeping issues, and so he was on the couch. So that mere item of, of his dad having sleeping problems saved his life because there was a PRV or TPR problem with that valve. So since that time, code has come up with some other answers besides just the PRV. You've got the surge tank, etc. that help a little. But the bottom line is that PRV needs to be there. If it is not, that is a high-priority safety issue, which for me is the most abuse I can do on any single inspection point. If it's a high priority, it needs to be done now. If it's a safety issue, it needs to be done now because somebody is unsafe because of that issue. So that's big stuff. You need to make sure that it's there. You cannot test it because nine times out of ten, when you test it and open up that valve, it will not reseal afterwards. And that's because it should get maintained, but it doesn't. And so when you open it up to exercise that valve, It will not reseal. Then it's going to leak. And then you get the phone call from somebody's lawyer wanting you to replace their water heater. You changed the house. You changed the conditions in the house. And that makes you the stucky. So you don't want to actually turn that valve to make sure that it's functional. But you do want to make sure that at least the the PRV is there. You also want to make sure that it can actually do its job. Sometimes I'll see where the water heater is rotated to the point where as it tries to open up, it can't because we've got either sheet metal from the furnace or we've got sheet rock from the wall that is jammed up against this PRV. Not good, and that sort of thing, again, needs to be written up. That's the equivalent of not having a PRV, and again, you're begging at that point for the water heater to turn into a bomb. This is the kind of stuff that you're hired to protect the client from, and you need to make sure, especially when we have a problem there, that they are very clear that that is the reason why they hired you and that everything else that you find is a bonus. It's that important.
Okay, so then we've got the tank drain. Now it's a little drain, usually located right at the bottom. And again, it should be exercised at least twice a year. The reality is that nobody ever exercises that thing. But it does have hose threads on it so that you can hook up a hose and run the drainage from the bottom of the water heater out to wherever the drain might be. Sometimes there's a floor drain nearby. There should be, but that doesn't mean there is. Sometimes it's got to be run who knows where, maybe out the window into the backyard. So the tank drain should be there. If it's leaking, that's a problem. You're also going to want to look for corrosion anywhere around the water heater. If you've got corrosion at the joints above the water heater, that's because we've got dissimilar metals maybe. We've got some sort of a leak. And it's either a sign of, of an active leak or a historical leak or a leak that is presently small, but it's going to get bigger tomorrow. So those are the kind of things you want to be paying attention to. Especially at the top, you're going to want to look at all the interfaces, the TPR. If the earthquake strap is maybe causing havoc, maybe they use two-inch screws as they were screwing into the water heater. You just going to want to pay attention to those sorts of things. And then at the base, if you see where there is corrosion at the base, especially inside the burn chamber, there's that little port that you can open and take a look at things. Sometimes you can open it. Sometimes it's just a port that you can view through a window. But if you're seeing corrosion inside there, fire does not cause corrosion. Water does. So if we've got a lot of corrosion in there, there's water getting into there. And water into the burn chamber means that we've got a leak of some size. And that's only going to get bigger. So that needs to be reported. In addition, another one of the inspection points is going to be the combustion air source. And what I tell people to describe what combustion air does is the home is like a straw. Air can't leave unless it's being replaced from the other side. So you take a look at that flue and uh, you know that it vents to the exterior of the house. But if there is no air replacing the air that's leaving, air won't leave. So I use that analogy of the straw, and combustion air can be a very difficult thing to explain until you kind of bring in the straw into the picture, and then people understand. So the combustion air line will usually be a 6 to 8 inch diameter pipe brought in from the exterior into the same room that the water heater is, and usually the furnace as well. If you've got the furnace and water heater in different locations, then... We need combustion air for both. Now, high-efficiency furnaces will often bring in their own combustion air. So if that's the case, that's not a standard combustion air source is not required. But you still have to have something for the water heater. Now, there is an exception to that, and that's that if you've got a direct vent, sort of a uh, flue, meaning that they actually have a fan on that goes full-time that's forcing air out of the house, then you don't have to have a combustion air source. Direct vent is highly inefficient. It's going to be forcing air out, as I mentioned, all of the time. And so if you're heating and cooling that home, it's going to be blowing that heated and cooled air out. And as a result, you know, the fan's going to cause higher bills, and the loss of the conditioned air is also going to cause higher bills. So usually the direct vent hood is not a good choice, but there are times when you'll see it done. In my area, I see a direct vent hood less than 1% of the time, but it does happen. So you'll want to at least be able to identify one of those and name it 
and then perhaps gather further information on why there was a perceived need to do a direct vent on the water heater. As far as the age is concerned, I tell people that typically a water heater will last about 8 to 10 years, but it really has more to do with gallons used than years past. So, for example, if you've got granny and grandpa and they rarely wash their clothes and they use the clothesline instead of the dryer and maybe they only flush once a day, who knows what their lifestyle might be, the water heater, of course, flushing isn't with hot water, but you get the idea. Depending on their lifestyle, their water heater that might be designed for 8 to 10 years could last for 25. I've seen that happen before where you get a water heater that's 25, 27, approaching 30 years old, and then I show up and it's still going, especially the glass-lined ones. So age alone is not reason enough to recommend replacement for a water heater. But you can certainly look around and there are signs that the water heater is on its way out. And we're going to talk about those in a minute. But age is uh, certainly something that you should identify. A lot of water heaters, you can tell the year just based on looking at the serial number. Sometimes they'll do a number like, 1003, which would be October of 2003, or something akin to that. Uh, you know, on the older water heaters, if it was built in February of 99, you might see an 0299. That can give you a clue. Sometimes, though, a water heater manufacturer will hide that information, and you have to either go looking for maintenance records or on the plate, sometimes they'll have an ANSI standard. Sometimes you'll see an ANSI standard of maybe 2006 or whatever. And then that will give you an oldest bit of information. You know that if the ANSI standard to which the water heater was built was 2006, then the water heater is no older than 2006. So that's another little bit of information you can gather. Sometimes, like I say, the installer will write a date on there or it'll put a plate on and provide that sort of information. So sometimes it's easy. Sometimes it's not. Sometimes you have to guess. Sometimes you have to take down the serial number and go do some hunting. But having the age of the water heater is important because, as I mentioned, if a water heater is 8 to 10 years old, like I say, you can't recommend replacement based on age alone, but you can say that maybe they should monitor it carefully until it does go out or that they should perhaps budget replacement so that at least it's not a surprise when it does happen and they have the money to do the replacement. Just let them know that it's not going to last forever and that it needs to be given some monitoring and inspection until it actually does go out. Now let's talk about failure modes. So on water heaters, there's a number of ways that you can see that a water heater has failed. If you have a leak anywhere on the top side, there are a number of connections. And as those begin to go out, you can see the corrosion, you can see the deposition of calcium, and it just looks like dirt or rust or what have you. Those are fairly easy to see. And what happens if you've got a water heater that's 8 or 10 years old and showing, you know, other signs of issues and you've got, you know, maybe some corrosion going on above or around, it obviously doesn't make any sense to bring a plumber out to repair 
a small item when three weeks later you're going to have the rest of it go. So at that point in time, that uh, having corrosion above or around or at connections with the water heater, that is justification for just recommending the whole thing be redone. Now, sometimes you'll actually see a leak inside the chamber. Now, I have a couple of inspection stories where I dealt with that myself. There was one where they had the water heater, and it was about 20 years old, and they thought it was going to last forever. I got in there, and I saw that the insulation between the outer shell and the inside pressure chamber, that area is, I don't know, it's about a half inch wide, and it was filled with insulation, as every water heater is. I noticed that that insulation was wet, and not only was it wet, it was soaked. So I wrote in that this water heater was leaking and had failed. I saw that there was corrosion going on there, and I wrote it up as a high-priority issue. The sellers were quite sure that I was dead wrong, and so buyers and sellers started arguing with each other about whether the water heater should be replaced or not. And while they were arguing... I found out after the fact that that water heater actually erupted. It broke, and thankfully it didn't break like a rocket or a bomb. It just kind of opened up, and it flooded the house. At that point, everybody had to recognize that I wasn't as wrong as the sellers thought I was. If you see water going on at a water heater, you know a couple of things. One is that it is leaking, and two is that the leak will only get bigger until you have what's called in the engineering world a catastrophic failure. So there's a failure, and then then there's a catastrophic failure. And you can probably guess the difference between the two. Failures are acceptable on some level. Of course, they need to be written up and emphasized. But catastrophic failures, nobody wants those. That's when repair bills start uh, making five or six figures and people potentially start dying. This is the kind of stuff that you are paid to make sure they're warned about. So if you're seeing a leak inside the chamber, that's a high-priority safety issue. Then you can have a leak between the chamber and the outer shell, and that's what I was talking about. Sometimes you can actually see where there are water streaks running down the metal, either outside the entire unit or inside the outer shell, but outside the pressure chamber. So at that point, again, you know that you've got a pinhole leak in the pressure chamber, and again, that's the failure. There is no repair for that. you just got to replace the water heater. Sometimes you can have leaks at the PRV or the tank drain as well. We talked about the PRV earlier. And again, if the water heater is 8, 10 years old, even 6 years old, it doesn't make sense to spend $200 on replacing the PRV when you could maybe replace the entire water heater for six or $700. And if the homeowner did it himself, you could probably get that installed even for less than that. Numbers, of course, will change from one area to another, but you get the idea. It doesn't make sense on an old water heater to replace one failed part when everything else is on its way out as well. So that is justification for recommending replacement of a water heater, where age alone, as I mentioned, if nothing else is going wrong, then age alone is only, in my mind, justification for recommending monitoring and inspection and budgeting for replacement of that water heater. Other failure modes besides leaks at a water heater would be flame rollout, and that is pretty much as the word describes. You've got the flame that's happening beneath the burn chamber, 
And if for whatever reason that flame is rolling outside of the water heater, quite often you can see that because you'll have burn marks on the plate that's supposed to cover the viewport. If you got that flame rollout, you can certainly have some fire issues. I did an inspection not very long ago, it's just a couple of weeks ago, where somebody was storing a gas can right next to the furnace and water heater. Again, you know, you just don't want to be tempting fate. Uh, Murphy's Law has enough, causes enough problems without having flame rollout and or having gas cans located right next to water heaters. Similarly, you'll want to just notice if there's boxes or papers or anything else that's combustible located near the water heater or anything else that, that has a flame. Another way for people to die as relates to water heaters, besides the rocket slash bomb method, would be carbon monoxide. Now let's say, for example, that you have a water heater, and maybe it was even placed correctly back in 1940, but then in 1980, Grandpa decides to move it. Or let's say that he decides to move it in 2015. And now he's moving it to the outer corner of the basement, and you've got this big, long, horizontal run with, you know, four or five elbows, and maybe it sags in the middle, and, you know, who knows what other crazy stuff Grandpa does. Maybe he's going to use dryer vent line as part of the flu. Any and all of the above is the kind of thing you're going to want to notice as the home inspector. The flu, of course, needs to be made of material that is designed to be a flu, non-combustible, non-melting, etc. And I'm not going to step into the trap of telling you what code is, because once again, I'm not a code inspector, neither are you, and code can change from year to year and state to state, so you'll want to look that up yourself. Bottom line is if you've got multiple elbows and you have long horizontal runs, or if you have three-inch pipe, all of this is a sign that you have things going wrong. Obviously, the easy answer is that if it is very difficult for the contaminated air to leave the house, then it might not leave. And when it doesn't leave, you got carbon monoxide in the house and people start dying. This is the kind of stuff that you're hired to protect your buyers from. Similarly, if you have a blockage inside that flue, let's say that maybe a mouse got in there and made a nest, or maybe Grandpa crimped it because he was going around a corner or whatever. Now, you may or may not be able to see the mouse. You might be able to see the crimp, but you can always test the draft hood on the water heater to make sure that it actually is pulling air into the flue and that we're not getting carbon monoxide out. One of the inspections that I did was at a little apartment for some college students. It was only a few hundred square feet, and you had four students living in there. Everything about this place was tiny. So you walk in, you've got this tiny living room. Behind it, you've got a tiny kitchen, and behind that, you've got two tiny bedrooms, and that is the entire place. So they had to squeeze in a water heater into this space, and they squeezed it in all right, what they did not do is they did not get the inspection points that were there. They didn't have the combustion air into the closet right off of the living room that this water heater was in. So what happens? I see that and I'm thinking, wow, there's no way for us to get replacement air so that this carbon monoxide can actually go through the flue as it should. 
So I start testing things, and sure enough, we have a carbon monoxide problem with the property. Now, I tested the flue itself, and the outflow was actually seven parts per million. To give you an idea, you know, some comparison, EPA allows up to 50 parts per million in the workplace for eight hours a day. So according to EPA, you know, that's an acceptable number. The reality, though, is that this seven parts per million of continuous inflow into this tiny apartment was not okay because it's kind of like filling a swimming pool with a garden hose. It takes a while, but eventually that swimming pool is going to fill and it's going to overflow. So as we're continuously adding seven parts per million of carbon monoxide into that space, you're going to get some very large numbers inside that living space, and those girls are going to start having health effects. I started asking, and sure enough, they had headaches, they had nausea, they had all those things that come with carbon monoxide, and those girls were lucky to have stayed out of the hospital and or the morgue. So that, of course, was the primary item that I wrote up on that inspection. The money they paid me was well spent because they were going to put their own daughter in there, and that might have turned out very poorly. So you want to make sure that, you know, we don't have the long horizontal runs and we do have the inspection points, the combustion air, etc. As you are near the water heater, you'll want to listen to that too. Sometimes the older ones will have a whole bunch of soil that has washed in over time. Now, there's a lot more in a water system besides water. I used to do inspection and cleaning of drinking water storage tanks back in the day. And what I saw in those drinking water storage tanks would horrify anyone, from the bugs to the birds to the mice to the forks and cups and beer bottles and even underwear that were often found in drinking water systems. They all wash in to homes eventually. The very first home that I bought, I'd been there for about a week when my dishwasher was destroyed by a twig that had washed in. So what that tells you as the home inspector is that there's stuff that has washed in. A lot of it shows up in the water heater, and it just piles up on the bottom. Now, that can be partially addressed when the homeowner drains the tank using the tank drain and the, the topside pressure valve. Reality is nobody ever does that, and so you can't count on that. To do so would be crazy because it doesn't happen. So as the home inspector, you're going to want to listen. You're going to turn the water heater up and then listen to see if it gurgles. If it does gurgle, it's going to kind of sound like jeans in the dryer or popcorn popping, that sort of thing. And what's happening is the flame is heating up the sludge, the mud, on the bottom of the water heater. And then as the mud boils, it's going to release that heat into the water above. And then you repeat that cycle endlessly and that's what is going on inside the water heater. It's a sign that the water heater is on its way out and that the homeowner probably has a year or less left of service life on that water heater. So you're going to want to listen for gurgling. Another one of the inspections I did, this was a brand new home. And as I got into the house, I heard what can only be described as a drip sizzle. So I stayed there and I listened to that for a while because this water heater was brand new. I mean, it got installed yesterday. Nobody had ever even used it. 
and I had a lot of trouble believing that a brand new water heater had already failed. So I stayed there and listened for a while, and sure enough, you get a drip, sizzle, drip, sizzle. And what's going on there is you're getting water leaking from the pressure chamber into the burn zone. And as it hits the sheet metal on the bottom of that burn zone, that's where you're going to get the drip sound. As it's quickly evaporated, that's the sizzle sound. So when you hear that, that's what's going on. That water heater is toast. It can't be repaired. It just needs to be replaced. In this particular story, I wrote that up, and the contractor actually was brave enough to claim that that was condensation that was going to go away over time, and that was crazy. I was called back out to the house, and we turned the water heater back on, and this was days later, and it did the same thing again, so we put that one to rest. But they'll try almost anything to avoid having to face up to the obvious. You'll deal with that, too. So listen for the drip sizzle or look for any signs of water. If you got water in or around that water heater, unless it's coming from the toilet upstairs, uh, that water heater is probably toast. Now, another one of the things I want to cover here is the difference and strengths and weaknesses of natural gas water heaters versus electric. The area that I inspect in, I'm going to say that 99% of the water heaters that I deal with are natural gas. Natural gas is less expensive, and it gets used so often that few people really want to pay the price associated with electric. Now, maybe the water heater is in a farm area where maybe the homeowner just wanted to have an all-electric house so that it only had one bill to pay. You know, that's his choice, but as the home inspector, you're going to want to notice that you don't have gas going into that water heater, that it is an electric line, and that they're going to be paying larger bills because they have an electric water heater. Now, the next question you get, of course, is how expensive is it going to be to convert? And the answer is fairly straightforward. You've got to create or bring in a gas line. You've got to bring the peripherals associated with the hot water heater, the earthquake strap, and the tank drain, etc. And you've got to create a flue so that the exhaust products from the natural gas, when you convert over, can exhaust properly. Sometimes I've seen where homes go electric because there's just not a good way to exhaust the air from that water heater area. Of course... With enough budget, you can do anything you want, but in these particular homes, apparently the homeowner didn't have enough budget that day, so he went with electric. Obviously, you can mention that electricity and water aren't necessarily always compatible. You can bring that sort of thing up as well. And if things do go badly, electricity and gas become even less compatible. You'll probably want to just recommend that they consider going with natural gas and having that be part of their expenses for upgrading the property they're about to buy to something that's a little bit more, let's say, up-to-date. Let me give you some numbers so that you uh, have these in your pocket. Typical monthly costs, and again, this can depend hugely on whether you got a family of 2 or 20, how often they take baths and showers, how often they wash their clothes, There's a number of variables that can change the number all over the place. But for natural gas, typical monthly costs are going to be between about $16 and $30 for a water heater. For electric, 
it's between about 25 and 42. So that's going to be about a 50% increase on both of those numbers. If you go tankless, and tankless water heaters are another way to do it, I can spend a little bit of time on tankless, but as far as this is concerned, the monthly cost for a tankless is $11. So you're saving about $5 per month with tankless versus natural gas. The reason why tankless is cheaper is because you've got some energy loss just from having the hot water get stagnant and cool off there in the water heater. The savings are not that great, and the tankless is so much more expensive that the rate of return becomes very poor, much less than any investor would be willing to deal with. So tankless is a good toy. Maybe it's something to brag about and talk about, but from a reality standpoint, tankless not that great. And it's got all the same inspection points. You still got to have a flu, you still got to have gas, and you still need to not have leaks. So that's the monthly cost difference between tankless and electrical and natural gas. Overall, natural gas just makes sense. Now, you probably should be careful about recommending one versus the other, or for example, if they have electric. As long as it's functional, it's probably not a deficiency as I see it. But you can tell them that if they do upgrade electric natural gas, they will get their money back. By contrast, if they upgrade from either electric or natural gas to tankless, they won't get their money back until well after they have died. And that's not a good investment. So if they're looking at it as an investment, not a good choice. Finally, I want to mention recirculation systems. That one caught me once. Basically, the recirc system is about having hot water when you turn the valve on. That's one of my favorite pet peeves. You go into the bathroom in the morning, you turn on the shower, and you would like hot water when you turn on the hot water valve. The reality is you got to wait somewhere between 10 and 20 seconds for that hot water to actually get hot. The bigger the house, the more of a problem this is because the longer the run it is from the water heater to that shower head. So one way to address this, if the homeowner has a somewhat larger budget, is you can actually do a research system where you're continuously circulating hot water through the entire system all the time. And this is great. That way when you turn the water on, it's hot. The disadvantage is that it has some complexity and a lot more hardware to the system. You've got moving parts that can go down, and the upfront cost is considerably higher. You'll notice these research systems, they'll have a pump located right next to the water heater itself, and you'll see that extra line going into the water heater causing the recirculation. When you see that, that's what's happening. Don't get caught flat-footed not knowing what that is. Have that answer ready on the 1% of the homes that you inspect that have those. Okay, that's one example of some of the little quirky things that can happen, all of which, of course, you're going to be expected to know. Hopefully, we've gotten you to a at least a kindergarten level with this podcast about water heaters. But you are always going to want to do your own research. Go to my website, homemedicusa.com, check the blogs, etc., and the topic reviews. Talk with other home inspectors in the area. Go to those meetings. And notchi.org 
is an awesome website. It's got a ton of information about a thousand things. Very good site. You'll want to spend some time getting approved and certified there and, uh, and getting your game into top speed. Good having you on board. Go out there. Make me proud.